Welcome back to Streamageddon, the number one TV and streaming podcast in all of Sicily. Do not fact check me on that. And uh, this week, it's the week of December 12th, 2022. We are going to talk about the explosive season finale of The White Lotus Season 2. Plus, we're going to talk about the juicy new rumors from Warner Brothers Discovery. Will they rename HBO Max Max Plus? Or just Max. When you compare it to Max Plus, just Max sounds pretty good. And we're going to talk about our feelings about those rumors, plus a brewing feud between HBO uh, chief, Warner Brothers Discovery chief David Zasloff, and the big cheeses at Netflix. And what's next for The Daily Show now that Trevor Noah is officially no longer part of The Daily Show with Trevor Noah? So much going on this week. I'm your host, Chris Barlow, and I am joined across the East River by the Rocco to my Valentina, Diane Nora. How you doing, Diane? Oh, I'm doing great. I'm on the edge of my seat waiting to find out what's going to happen tonight on White Lotus. Me too. I'm so excited. We are recording about 11 hours before the season finale of The White Lotus hits uh, HBO and HBO Max. And through the magic of editing, we are going to time travel to the future at the end of this episode and have a live reaction cast right after the episode finishes tonight. I am so excited. And before we get there, we are going to look at our White Lotus predictions from earlier in the season and see how we're shaping up as we head into the finale. Uh, I I am so anxious about all the potential death that may occur that I am on the edge of my seat and will be all day. Ooh, I just can't wait. Me neither, but you know what? We have so much to get to first, and as uh, the erstwhile host of The Daily Show might say, let's get to it with the headlines. And we're going to start right there with The Daily Show. As we've talked about before, Trevor Noah shocked the world and his own staff when he announced his retirement from The Daily Show uh, earlier this fall. And last week was the last week of The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. I actually went down a little rabbit hole and watched uh, about three hours of The Daily Show over the course of the weekend. Uh, I'm, I'm going to miss him, said someone who has not regularly watched The Daily Show in a long time. Yeah, he was a great talent. I'm really excited to see more of what he does in terms of stand-up going forward and what other projects he might start. Yeah, you could sense that he is uh, itching to move on to something else. There there were a few moments in a few interviews where he sort of hinted at at, uh, his wanderlust. Uh, What I thought was interesting about the final episodes is that they really were sort of a a tribute to the cast of uh, correspondents who've been on the show for years and years now. Dulce Sloan, uh, Ronnie Chang, uh, obviously Roy Wood Jr., uh, Jordan Klepper came back in the finale. Just just such a, a, a really great cast of correspondents that in a way reminded me of the early Jon Stewart era when they were kind of making it up as they go along. And there's still a bit of that vibe, even though they are not making it up as they go along anymore. I love that. You know, I think that the strength of the show is always, as much as it is on the host, on the team of correspondents, um, and, you know, my favorite eras of Jon Stewart weren't just because I liked Jon Stewart. It was the team around him. And I think the fact that Trevor Noah seems to have helped each of those correspondents um, sort of develop their own voice and take and character for the show has made it very entertaining. 
Yeah. But you know what we will be entertained by in 2023? We're going to be entertained by the constant rumors of who will be the full-time replacement for Trevor Noah, because I, I am not surprised to say this, Paramount did not have enough time to do a, a real search for a full-time host. That's a massive undertaking, and there was just no way that they would be able to return uh, on air in January as planned with everything ready to go for a brand new era of the show. So what are we getting instead, Diane? So it seems like different celebrities are taking over the show for weeks at a time. And also some of the current correspondents will also have their their shot. Yeah, honestly, the announcement is super vague on the details in some way. They mention that there's going to be many, many, many different guest hosts. They throw out the idea that the correspondents will sometimes be the guest hosts. And then it's just a cavalcade of names, including Leslie Jones, Wanda Sykes, Al Franken, uh, Chelsea Handler, Hassan Minaj. It it is a who's who and a who of uh, people who could be hosting the show. Yeah, what was interesting to me, it seems to be that they don't know who their target demographic is going to be yet based on this wide slate of <laughs> of possible hosts. I think some of these folks, too, what we're seeing here is really just that they're buying time. I don't think that Al Franken is being seriously considered, and may I add, God, I hope not, as the new host of The Daily Show. I think that this is just a way for them to buy some time while they make this decision and then let whoever the replacement will be start to rebuild their team and start doing some of the writing on what on what their version of The Daily Show will look like. Yeah, and speaking of buying time, they're buying a lot of it because they did tell us this will continue through fall of 2023. This is not a little space filler for the the spring. This is a a full-blown, we-are-taking-our-time announcement. And I, I do think it's such a wide range of guest hosts that... I would suspect they're feeling out what could the new flavor of the show be. This is kind of a way to do a soft focus group almost. See just what are the most viral moments, which hosts really connect with the format, with the audience online. Because honestly, the the big goal, I think, is not necessarily to improve the ratings of The Daily Show on Comedy Central, but it's to make sure that they continue their upward trajectory of being an actual viral Uh, sensation. Most people watch Trevor Noah on YouTube on clips, and that's the thing they risk losing, because that's the momentum that, in theory, will carry them into the streaming era. In theory. Right. Yeah, there are always um, those clips of Trevor, too, I think also do really well on social. Um, So I think hopefully they'll try to maintain that. I do imagine we'll have some awkward moments. Remember when they had Aaron Rodgers as one of the guest hosts of Jeopardy? (laughs) It's like, you know, some of these folks just don't really seem to fit into the Daily Show um, tone. But, you know, maybe that's a good thing. And we'll see, you know, the show find a new voice. That's that's ultimately the goal. Yeah, and honestly, I'm a big fan of uh, Jimmy Kimmel's summer stints when he has guest hosts fill in for him on uh, Mm -hmm. Jimmy Kimmel Live. And so I'm just kind of excited from that perspective of I've always enjoyed the opportunity to watch a bunch of different people try their hand at this very fossilized format of late night comedy. And it sometimes is really awkward or stilted, but part of the fun is seeing who surprises you. Yeah, yeah, I think that uh, hopefully we'll we'll really uh, have some delightful surprises. 
Hopefully we will. And listeners, who would be the most delightful surprise for you? Who are you hoping to see host The Daily Show in 2023? Tell us. Write to us. Podcast at streamageddon.com. We will be keeping an eye on this and sharing our opinions as we find some time to watch The Daily Show next year. But we have so many other shows to watch first, and we need to talk now about the network of the week, the network that we are so excited about. It's HBO and HBO Max, of course, and that means it's time to talk about their parent company, Wabro Disco. That's, of course, Warner Brothers Discovery, headed by CEO David Zaslav, the Zaz. And we have a lot of Warner Brothers Discovery news to dig into this week, beginning with, I feel like, the the rumor that shook the streaming universe last week. The word is Max. That's it. That's the word. The word is just Max. That's the entire story, the whole rumor. It's just Max. I hate it. (laughs) Tell me how you really feel about this proposed name for the new HBO Discovery streaming service, Diane. It's not that bad. I think it's smart that they went minimal with a shorter name instead of trying to go, you know, HBO, Warner Brother, Discovery Plus. Premium Plus. Premium. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that, you know, Max is succinct. I'll probably still call it HBO for a while. Uh, uh, honestly, yeah, maybe part of this. So we should back up and say the rumor is that the lawyers are vetting Max and that, that they really need to do some vetting because it is a broad enough name that there could be some uh, legal issues with trying to trademark just M-A-X as your streaming service name. So right now, the the word is the lawyers are trying to get the clearance because that is the preferred name internally for the uh, merged streaming service coming next year between HBO and Discovery+. Plus. Uh, now, there is also word that there's a contingent in the company that wants to keep the name HBO Max, but that that may not be who you think it is. You might think, oh, the HBO people want HBO Max to be the brand, but no. The the actual fear is that as we incorporate all of the Discovery catalog into the Max brand, that there's a risk that like the 90 Day Fiance universe is going to dilute the brand recognition of HBO uh, through you know, this giant new conglomerate. And and sure, maybe. I feel like they already kind of rolled that die when they decided to name HBO Max HBO Max, and now I associate HBO with whatever HBO Max is trying to get me to watch. But I, I do think it's an interesting thing to say somebody there wants to pull back and say HBO is just one piece. It's not the big overall umbrella anymore. It's just our kind of jewel where you get your scripted originals. And we have a maximum amount of other things to offer you as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, keeping HBO as a protected smaller brand is is really wise. Um, I do think that there was some dilution happening with uh, HBO Max. As you said, you know, I I don't need to be watching uh, The Big Bang Theory on HBO. That, to me, will never be an HBO show. Um, At the same time, when I think of, like, HBO, I do think something like Hacks fits into that brand, which was also a Max original. Um, So, yeah, it'll be really interesting to see where some of that lands. But um, I think protecting HBO is a very smart move. 
It probably is the right call. And I, I think it's also the right call not to lean into the Discovery branding because that would almost confuse people. Uh, it would turn off some people who are, you know, sn- snooty and uh, do not want to be associated with the reality branding of Discovery. Uh, but more importantly, I think the, the future service will probably have more in common with HBO Max from a consumer perspective than it will have in common with Discovery+. Plus. And the people who love Discovery+, Plus will come along for the ride because they want to keep watching that content. But what you don't want to do is scare away or confuse the people who are already paying you, like, you know, 10 to $15 a month for HBO Max because those are the people who you, you need to keep and then grow on as you raise prices and add more advertising, which is undoubtedly what they're going to do when they merge the services. I, I think that's a very safe bet. And I think that... It goes both ways, too, that for some Discovery viewers, they're not interested in the HBO brand as well. So just the the Max name is smart on that end, too. You know, like HBO tends to skew coastal, tends to skew male. I think for a lot of folks, you know, Discovery might be safe to have on in the house if you have kids around. HBO, probably not, you know. Uh, so I think that it's, it, it's a smart move to do something that's a, a new thing that's not too closely associated with either brand. Yeah, you know, House Hunters, The Wire, both of them great to have on while you do laundry. I know which one I'd choose. <laughs> me too, me too. But you know, for each their own, and you'll get them all in Max, just Max. You know, you mentioned that The Big Bang Theory is on HBO Max. And as we were talking about this uh, earlier this week, you reminded me of the original ad campaign when they launched HBO Max, which was Ooh. where Bada. Uh, showing a Tony Soprano headshot, meets Bing, showing us Chandler Bing, meets Bang, showing us, uh, you know, uh, Sheldon. Uh, So I was reminded of how awful that attempt to uh, unify the disparate brands of Warner was. I I remember cringing routinely at buses when they passed me with that ad on it. Uh, And I think that speaks to the challenge that they always had at HBO Max that they now have in an even greater uh, degree with the merging of Discovery, which is just so many different brands that have almost nothing to do with each other. You know, you compare it to Disney Plus, which uh, a lot of the rumors say they're looking at Disney Plus as kind of a template for what the new service would look like. Disney Plus has the different tiles for their main brands. There's the Marvel tile, there's the Pixar tile, there's the Star Wars tile, and that's how they've organized Disney Plus with their collection of brands. I think a big difference, though, is that those brands all have a lot more in common than Discovery and HBO and everything else, such as Friends and the Big Bang Theory, that fall under the HBO Warner Brothers Discovery Max Plus umbrella. Right. I I think it will be tricky trying to get folks to understand what that brand is, especially if the people marketing it don't know what it is. If all you have to go on as here, try this out, here's a pun, a, a half-baked pun at that, <laughs> you're you're in trouble. Um, and I do think that's a part of the reason that the launch of HBO Max was not more successful. So um, we'll, we'll see how, how Max does and we'll keep you up to date on, you know, if that does become the name going forward and everything else that happens there. 
Yeah, uh, rumor is we're still looking at spring of next year for this relaunch, so it is coming up fast, and if they're going to begin building the hype for it, building the uh, market demand for this exciting maximum service, they're going to have to make a decision soon and begin hyping it up. But speaking of hype, that's not the only news around Warner Brothers Discovery we have going on this week. Another story comes from a hype-filled show on another streamer. Diane, did you watch The Sandman? I didn't, but uh, I think Neil Gaiman's super talented, so I was intrigued by it. I just never ended up turning it on. But many people did. Yes, same. Exact same reaction here. Many, many people I know enjoyed The Sandman, and I thought about it. And might watch it again, because season two has been renewed by Netflix. But here is where this comes back to Warner Brothers' discovery. Because you might not know that The Sandman is a Warner Brothers television studio production. And you might go, wait, 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 wait. Why is this show on Netflix a Warner Brothers television studio production? Didn't we just talk about how they have this maximum fun streaming service, max size, super size, premium plus discovery that they want to fill with content? Why aren't they hoarding that content? Didn't we just have an episode where we talked about the big streaming story of the year is how every company wants to hoard their own content now? We did say all of those things. That is true. Yes. But this is a different situation because Warner Brothers Television Studio has been making shows for every platform on the planet for years and years and years. Uh, there, You could pull up the Wikipedia article listing all of the Warner Brothers Television Studio's productions, which goes back to the 1950s. Uh, I, I will just give you one example. Abbott Elementary is a Warner Brothers Television Studio co-production. And where does that air? That airs on Disney's ABC and Hulu. Uh, This is something that Warner Brothers has been doing for years and years and years and years, and there is no way that they could ever afford to produce all those shows and air them themselves. That financially doesn't work. The whole point of the television studio is that they make the shows and sell them to other people who pay more than it costs to make the show. In theory, you make a profit. And then some of those things you sell to your own uh, distribution arm, like HBO. But not everything. That's just not how that works. That's not capitalism. Uh, And so uh, The Sandman, big hit from Warner Brothers Television Studios on Netflix. Netflix renewed it for season two. You would think David Zaslav would be happy about that. Well, Netflix renewed it for season two, but they waited three months to do so. And... They were difficult about it. Extremely (laughs) difficult about it. 200 million hours were viewed in the first 10 days, which is a hit for Netflix. Why were they slow rolling this? It seems like just to get the most they could out of this contract. And David Zaslav is not happy about it. In fact, he is so unhappy about it. He apparently has suggested that Warner Brothers Discovery put a pause on their deals with Netflix temporarily. This was an interesting story. So Deadline broke this. And part of me is wondering, did Netflix put this out there or did Zaz? And I'm inclined to think that Zaz wanted this out there himself or someone else at uh, Warner Brothers Discovery. 
I think that's the more likely scenario because he has very little to lose by putting some pressure on Netflix. And he knows that they don't only play hardball with David Zaslav. They play hardball with everyone. And Mm. there is some goodwill to perhaps be had in Hollywood. There's been, you know, a lot of talk this year about how uh, David Zaslav is a real good Hollywood operator. He's really good at saying the right things to the right people to calm the talent, to calm the creatives, even when he is running around canceling Batgirls and shuttering animation projects left and right, you know? Uh, Whereas like a Bob Chapek, who also is dealing with many of the same financial and streaming challenges, not good at glad-handing the creative side of the business, gets ousted in a boardroom coup. So just kind of, you know, uh, an example many people have talked about this year is the difference between those two personalities. And I think this is another example of Zaslav very cannily knowing that his audience is the Hollywood creative community and that if he takes a stand against Netflix, he is doing nothing, at the very minimum, nothing else but earning goodwill amongst people who might be sick of negotiating with Netflix and then get an offer to negotiate their next show with... Oh, let's say Max. Another interesting thing about this for me was that uh, he said for the next few weeks, I mean, the year's almost over. A bunch of people are going to be taking these weeks off anyways. Like what big deal was going to happen on December 18th? Maybe that does happen. And I'm just showing my lack of inside knowledge. But I think that some of this may just be bluster. And um, we know historically that Netflix really relies on quarter four. It's a big part of their strategy to have a massive quarter four in terms of um, earnings and also in terms of viewership. And so to just uh, give them a little bit of trouble in their quarter four seems like maybe a a bit of uh, Zaslav sticking it to the man. You know, one man sticking it to the other extremely powerful large man. Uh, I love it when the man sticks it to the men. At least the difference here is David Zaslav is the one CEO of one company. Netflix has co-CEOs. So the man is sticking it to the men. It's a great day. Beautiful day for humankind. Truly, truly. Uh, Well, we'll keep an eye on that. I I agree with you. The fact that they announced this uh, as a few-week pause during what should probably be the slowest deal-making weeks of the year. Okay, sure, sure, David. Uh, But I I agree that it's a a smart move. I see what they're doing there. I see what they're doing. Uh, and, And honestly... Uh, some people tweeted out some of their uh, experiences negotiating with Reed and Ted at Netflix uh, through this story. Ooh. And and while they already had a reputation for playing hardball, some of the details that came out, one anecdote I saw uh, tweeted was a, a creator who cornered uh, one of them at an event and said, why are you being so difficult in our negotiations? This is a producer just getting up the gumption to go up to like the, his... You know, Sarandos. Yeah, to Sarandos himself, to Ted Sarandos and go, you know, why are you making this so hard and Ted Sarandos responds you'll be back oh it would really I would be so mad so you know when I bump into David Zaslav walking through the park like like you do on the Upper West Side I'm gonna say hey David good job yeah please do but speaking of good jobs I'm wondering something Diane I'm wondering when we made some predictions about the White Lotus season two earlier this fall did we do 
a good job predicting how the season would end. As we said earlier, we haven't seen the finale yet because it is Sunday morning, but through the magic of editing, we are about to enter a liminal space where first, before the White Lotus finale, we are going to look back on our predictions and take one final opportunity to update our murder bracket, the most serious game of the year, the squid game of the streaming universe that's not squid game. Uh, And then we will leap ahead to Sunday night after the episode is finished and share our reactions to the episode. So if you have not watched the season finale of The White Lotus yet, that is okay. We will give you a heads up before we start spoiling the finale. But right now, we are going to move into part one of our White Lotus recap here. So if you have not seen episodes one through six of season two of The White Lotus and you are uh, avoiding those spoilers, we'll then pause right here. We'll see you later. But for everyone else, let's go to Sicily. Yes, let's take a moment to revisit our predictions for Season 2 of The White Lotus. And I I guess I should pause and say, Diane, are you enjoying Season 2 of The White Lotus? Oh, very much. Here's my quick reaction. Uh, And again, we haven't seen the season finale quite yet. But this season has been a slower build to a much more tense climax. Yes, uh, I I think that that's very fair to say. I think that... Perhaps this season, to me, uh, the murders have been more, or the um, potential murders to come have been more front of mind than in last season. I think that by the time I got to the finale, I'd almost forgotten about the little um, teaser in the first episode that there's a body um, because I was so caught up in the human drama. And right now, at every moment of the past few episodes, I've just sat there being like, oh my God, they're about to kill. (gasps) oh my God, they're about to kill this person. And so um, in the sense that I'm trying to figure it out, I feel uh, enraptured, Yeah, obsessed. Yeah, me too, me too. And I I think Mike White knew this going into season two and leaned into the whodunit because I similarly sort of forgot that there was a murder mystery at the the center of season one by the time we got to the end of that season. And then, of course, it hits you that much harder when that twist at the end of season one happens and you you remember, oh, right, somebody died. And I've been thinking about that the whole season in theory. Well, this time, that is much more front of mind because you remember that, that twist at the end of last season. You can't not remember that twist at the end of last season. So there's no way that that uh, murder mystery element would recede into the back of the mind the same way it did last time. And so instead he went in the opposite direction and leaned hard into it with way more uh, foreshadowing, way more ominous uh, lingering camera shots, crashing waves, just every moment building to make you think, oh, is somebody about to die on, on the rocks in the water? Oh, no, is somebody about to fall off a balcony? Oh, no, is somebody about to be shot with that gun in the gigolo's handbag? Just saying. I mean, I think Mike White is too clever a creator to not uh, have something happen with that gun. 
right? Well, what I think is so juicy this season is that by the uh, sixth episode, the second to last episode that aired last week, I, I every scene, I just thought, oh, somebody could die in this scene. Oh, somebody's going to die in this scene. Oh, nope, this scene, somebody's about to die. And no one died in any of those scenes. I spent that entire 60 minutes convinced I was about to watch at least one death. And I am at the point where I think just about any character could die and almost any character could kill someone. I, I truly, he's set up so many Chekhov's guns, so to speak, that mm. I think any one of them could go off at any moment. Agreed. Do you think the piano player died? I love the piano player because he reminds me of the woman who gives birth in the first episode of season one, and I expect we will just never hear from him again. Agreed. Yeah. And he I kind of have. love that detail about it. He could die, but I, I, that feels irrelevant at this point. Agreed. And because uh, Rocco told Valentina that multiple guests, guests. had been killed, not uh, multiple people, uh, I don't think that the piano player would count. I agree. I agree. And, and what better time for us to revisit our White Lotus murder bracket ahead of the finale? So just to recap, we made our guesses at the beginning of the season after watching the first two episodes. Uh, I guessed three deaths. Diane, you guessed four deaths. And uh, here is who we thought would die, okay? I guessed that we would lose young Albie, uh, Greg, Greg, we have much to discuss with Greg. I also thought we would lose Cameron. And I thought we would lose someone who has not been introduced yet. Uh, and that could be perhaps someone from the Quentin universe. We didn't have to specify because we did not know who they were yet. So those were my uh, four guesses. Uh, four? Yeah, somehow I got up to four, even though I said three. And you got up to five, even though I said four. We both just, we were murder happy. So you guessed that we would lose F. Murray Abraham's Bert. Sad, but I could see I could see why you guessed that. You also thought we would lose Greg. Greg, where is Greg? Tanya's Greg is missing now, and perhaps the cowboy from Montana, but I digress. You thought we would lose Ethan, not Cameron. And then you also uh, went in on someone who hasn't been introduced yet, and you tossed in the prediction that we might lose one of the locals. And so I'm wondering, let's start there, because we were just talking about the piano player. Do you still think we're going to see one of the locals die? I do not think that Mia or Lucia will die. Same. I do, or Alessio. I think, I think they're safe. Mm -hmm. I think they're safe. I think that even they, Lucia might try and find a way to get to California. I, I'm, I don't know if it'll be that rosy for her, but we'll see. She's uh, very entrepreneurial. True, true. She, they, they remind me of the massage uh, therapist in season one, where their dreams seem so within their grasp, and yet I know as the viewer that they're not. Right. Uh, so, so do you still think there is a local death in the mix? Because you have the opportunity to change one prediction. Is this a prediction you want to change? Uh, yeah, I'll change it. Wow. I'll say I, I think they're going to live. Wow, that was easy. Okay. Uh, so you still feel good about Bert dying, Ethan dying, Greg dying? I actually, I mean, so I think those are all still very possible. I still think there'll be an attempt on Tanya's life, which could result in Greg dying. Because I do think Greg is going to return in this episode. I think so, too. I think that is almost a guarantee based on the, that very ominous shot of the old photo that appears to be of a young Quentin and a young Greg that Tanya saw. And then Tanya sort of forgot because cocaine will do that to you. 
Well, she also had uh, something very distracting happening. <laughs> That's true. That's really true. And and of course, we're referring to that Italian disco banger she was dancing to. I mean, so good. <laughs> okay. I feel like, you know, I, I also sort of don't want to change too much because I equally think all of these people could die. So if I just change things, I'm just kind of changing at random. I am still on team uh, Cameron is dying. I And my, my change that I want to make is I think Ethan and Cameron both die. I think they're not the murders, so to speak. They're the accident where something happens, they get into an argument, and they kill each other. That's the change I want to make. Uh, and in order to accommodate that change, I think I'm going to uh, let Albie live. Yeah, I don't think Albie's going to die. I think that would take the show to a darker place than it's set up. As the season has gone on, I that I agree. Uh, and so that, that brings us around. We each made one shift in our in our chart. Do you, you know, I, I moved a, a death over. Do you want to add a death because you removed a death? That would be fair. Well, I so here's my thing. I really do not know who of the four lovers, let's say, is going to die um, between uh, Ethan, Cameron, Harper, and Daphne. I, you know, feel confident that uh, Daphne is going to live. I was about to I say, see it would be a big twist if they found a way to kill off Daphne right. because they really <laughs> made us think she's alive. Yeah. So, uh, but um, I could see it being any of the other three, to be honest. Um, part of me is inclined to think that all the deaths will be men. Um, I And I wouldn't be <laughs> horribly disappointed with that <laughs> outcome from a storytelling perspective. From a storytelling perspective, of course. Of course, of course. Of course. Um, I, I, I do have a more specific guess when it comes to the locals. Oh, Or yes. not the locals. The, 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 the new the characters. Newbies. Yeah. Yeah. What is it? I I think that Leo Woodall's Jack is going to die. I thought I think he's the sex worker who dies. I will Not give Lucia. you I will give you a bonus point if the person who dies is specifically Jack. Yes, that's a fair a fair gamble. I like it, uh, and I think based on where where he ended episode six, that does seem pretty likely. More likely than Tanya dying. I I think Tanya's bulletproof. I do, too, though. There has been so much, like, visual um, sort of Easter eggs suggesting that she will die. But I just don't think that Mike White lied to us. Yeah, And I, we know a season three is coming. Yeah, and also, I, I honestly think that all that ominous visual uh, pageantry around Tanya also could equally hint at Tanya killing someone mm-hmm. in self-defense, in an accident. I could absolutely see Tanya pulling a trigger. So who is Tanya going to kill? Who do you think? Well, I think Greg is a real possibility there. Mm -hmm. That Mm -hmm. really could shape up. And I also think on the note of Jack, there there is easily a way where she's somebody who pulls the trigger on Jack. And it's tragic, but also uh, somewhat an act of self-defense. And she's wealthy, so she'll get away with it. Yeah, I think that's very possible, too. And also really uh, heartbreaking. I think that... um, Unrelated to the murders, um, my prediction is that uh, 
Leo Woodall is going to be a huge star and in conversation for the next James Bond. Like, I think he's a big breakout from this season, as as well as uh, Megan Fahey as Daphne. Yeah, actually, some really great uh, performances. We'll talk more about that in a moment when we can assess the whole season. Uh, But I do want to shout out one link in the show notes, a delightful interview with uh, the actress who plays Valentina. Uh, she's an Italian star who, who's been, you know, in the, the scene in Italy for decades. And But this is her first big U.S. role. And she's just delightful to talk to and to hear how she approached what turned out to be a really interesting storyline for uh, Valentina. I, I really, uh, there, there were moments where I was cringing, but cringing out of a real sense of love of what she's going through. Yeah, so much empathy, I think. Um, and she just, what a beautiful performance. There's... So much nuance in every facial expression. So good. So good. But you know what? It's time. It's time for us to warp 11 hours into the future and watch this finale. Enough predictions. We've already seen how it ended. Let's cut to the chase. Spoiler alert for the season finale of season two of The White Lotus in Sicily. Here we go. Yes, we have time traveled 11 hours later. I have poured myself an adult beverage, and I am still joined across the East River by the Mia to my Lucia. Or maybe the Lucia to my Mia. I I really think you're the Lucia in this relationship, Diane. Oh, thank you so much. Always, always. And we have just finished watching the season finale of season two of The White Lotus on HBO. Uh, Spoiler alert for it all right now. Last chance. Get out now while you still can. Kind of like Tanya in Palmero. Palermo. Palermo. Like I said, I'm having an adult beverage. So, Diane, what did you think (laughs) of the finale? I thought it was very intense. Uh, I think my heart was racing throughout i I just Um, i want to tell the listeners briefly before we get to our real reactions Mm. diane was like five minutes behind me on the episode and immediately at the beginning texted me i am five minutes behind you say nothing and then i had no one to scream at i had no one to scream at but my tv that's a really rough position i was definitely throughout that um final sequence on the boat speaking aloud to tanya just saying, yeah. you know, like, you can do it. Come on. Come get on. the gun, Tanya. Get Come on. the gun. Grab it. Grab it. Grab it. No, no, no. Don't go head first. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah, that happened. So listen, if you're listening to this and you want it spoiled, maybe you're a fan of the White Lotus, but only from a distance, we should tell you what happened and we should uh, do a quick scoring of our White Lotus death bracket. We finally can score this thing. And spoiler alert, we both lost badly. But I want to start with where I think we got things right. Uh, And I want to give myself a lot of credit to 11 hours ago when I said Tanya's the one most likely to use that gun and most likely to kill people with it. And sure enough, Tanya went on a killing spree. And unfortunately, it included Tanya. Well, yeah. But she did very well for herself. I think she did. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the nefarious plot by Greg is probably spoiled. Even if for a moment it seems like he's going to take her money, at some point these insurance people, whoever is getting the payout from her death, right, or is administering the payout from her death, are going to reach out to Portia. And, you know, 
it's going to be they're going to be able to figure out what happened. And I'm I'm curious what will Portia say? I, so in the finale, we spend so much time thinking Ethan's going to kill Cameron. Cameron's going to kill Ethan. Daphne's going to kill them all. And then it turns out in the most believable twist of the finale, all of the wealthy people vacationing from America essentially live. All the young, attractive people. They're good. They're fine. And instead, the, the plot was entirely what we kind of uh, thought, which is that Greg has been teeing up uh, a way to get Tanya's money despite the prenup. And, uh, you know, I had innocently thought that this was going to be like a a scheme where he has a clause about fidelity and he's going to tape her having sex with the the beautiful Italian man and then they're going to do a shakedown. And that, of course, is extremely naive because, no, the easier way to get your prenup wife's money is to kill your wife. Uh, And that's what they've been building up to. And it becomes painfully apparent to Tanya in this finale that Quentin and his gays are taking him her on a cruise to her death while Portia is being detained by Jack. Yeah, all the straight men end up fine. Like they do in real life. Just going to mm-hmm. point that out. Uh, I, again, yeah. I, I, d- did I want this twist? No. No. Is it, like the twist in season one, the most believable twist they could have pulled on me? Yes. Right. And in that sense... I do find it thematically satisfying, even though watching it, I was like, no, but the fact that I'm feeling that way, I think is evidence that the show was successful. Yeah, honestly, I think thematically satisfying is such a good way to describe it. I I want to change things about how the season ended, but I wouldn't change a thing because I think it would undermine what the White Lotus is trying to do. Agreed. Yeah. And I think one of the questions that we started off our review of the whole season discussing was whether the White Lotus is successful as a piece of satire at all and whether or not that matters. And for me, I think this season is. It is a successful satire. Uh, I think that in and in ways it's actually more similar than to season one than different in the sense that it really is looking at class uh with a with a pretty pointed scalpel. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it's such an interesting show in that it caters to your impulse to eat the rich. You know, it really mm. wants you to settle into this feeling of, yeah, finally this this rich asshole Cameron, he's gonna get it. But then. It reminds you that just wanting to eat the rich is not productive, essentially. That literally is what happens to Armand in season one. He gets his comeuppance in the most literal sense possible. And this season is a little less on the nose than that, but I think equally knows what the viewers are craving and then knows not to give them the the sugar rush that they're craving. It knows to give them some vegetables instead, so to speak. Right. And I did suddenly feel assured in Cameron's safety when he hands Lucia the envelope full of cash because you think, oh, he's not poor. Because there seemed like certain moments when they might actually be broke, yeah. um, and Cameron they, and Daphne, ooh. and, and they're they not. Even, they even hint at it into the final episode when they're having a conversation mm-hmm. about some friend of theirs who lost his job for throwing a yogurt at an assistant. Uh, and how hard that's been on his family with their children in private school. And that, again, hinted at this belief that, wait, is Cameron broke? But no, 
He is not. He is simply Cameron for life. The, uh, I, I briefly, before we hopped on, watched Mike White's little talking head at the end of the episode on HBO. And uh, his takeaway is is essentially that, you know, that these rich people are going to go on with their lives just as they were. And he specifically says he doesn't think Cameron will ever change. And I think that's really true, actually. Yeah. And it's important for the show to acknowledge that and have characters like that because that's how you create the the satire of of the white lotus i don't know that anyone in these worlds really changes or is capable of change unless it's toward the more cynical well like here's someone like albie i think has changed i well okay you're you're gonna i like this we're gonna take different sides on this because you're gonna take the cynical side on albie has changed and i i would have taken that side with you up until the final moment of the episode well, the next to final moment where Albie uh, runs into Portia at the airport and they have this mm-hmm. very genuine moment of exchanging their numbers and remembering that that basically they were the two best people that met each other on this entire trip and that they both took it for granted because they're young and impulsive and looking for excitement in their lives. But they're looking for it in extremely different ways. Albie wants to save someone. Portia wants to go wild and have a great time. And they both realize that neither of those things are really satisfying on their own. That they that by choosing extremes, they've chosen unhappiness and loneliness. And so there is this little bit of hope at the end that Albie is maybe accepting that, you know, coming from his family, being who he is, means he's gonna have you know, dirty, inappropriate thoughts sometimes and going to have the impulses to be more like his father and his grandfather sometimes, but also that that doesn't have to define him necessarily. He can work with it, which is the cynical side of it, for sure. Yeah, and I also think in that final interaction that after what she's been through, Portia may be more interested in a sort of savior figure than she was before, at least temporarily. I don't think there's some great love at all. I think they're just both back on the prowl a little bit. And like maybe at this point, Portia's like, I could use a little attention and sweetness, whereas before... You know, it was too much. But after what she's been through, it sounds kind of nice. I think that's very fair. My my silver lining uh, version of that would be to say they both know themselves better now. And whether that means they'll ever actually get together is kind of irrelevant. But it's more about they, they both have gotten deeper in touch with what they really want and perhaps more importantly, what they don't really want. I'm just not sure that I give either of them that much credit. But I think that's a very lovely interpretation and valid i just well i I think that they lack self-knowledge it took me back to season one for a minute where the only character who was sort of the window to the soul of the viewer was the teenage son who is more ancillary in season one but similarly is kind of the most um innocent in that he's still finding who he is in life he is not uh so locked into his ways where every adult on this show essentially everyone over the age of 25 on this show has completely calcified into who they are and will never change oh see, well, for with me, the exception of valentina the best... with the exception of valentina sorry <laughs> no no i i think that in season one my way into the world was through um the newlywed bride uh the alexandra daddario, daddario yeah. character um sorry if i'm mispronouncing her name but uh you know you really see how she realizes what she's married into and how despicable this wealthy man is. And you see her like 
go on that journey of discovery and then decide, well, I'm going to, this is what I chose and I'm going to keep choosing it. Right. But I, I, I thought that that was, that was my way into the that's, world of the white lotus that's such a dark journey of self-discovery yeah yeah but also true that's the thing is the the, the show likes to deliver bleak truths a real bleak mm. truth from this finale is that once tanya was on that boat tanya was dead one way or another and i think it, it was uh, if she has to die the choice to have her go out kicking and screaming and shooting was the right choice the best choice the most heroic choice you could give tanya but at the same time she was dead and buried the moment this episode began sort of uh speaking of that sequence of tanya shooting her way out fantastic cinematography going on and i think that is one way that this season took um a step forward for me from the last the last was also beautifully shot but i really felt like you know um there were so many scenes inspired by other great italian films and it just felt uh so rich every shot i wanted to like dissect and not just because i was looking for easter eggs though i was um i love that dress that Tanya died in is um, the same dress that was on the dummy in the car that exploded. It was the the double of the um, the scene from The Godfather where uh, Michael's first wife explodes in the car. It, she was wearing the same dress. <sighs> Did not Amazing. catch that at all. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, just, just so many fun little bits like that. But also for the like thematic relevance and for just the exquisite beauty of the way this show is shot. I loved the cinema cinematography this season. Yeah, and this season he really made a point, Mike White made a really pointed choice to lean into that. There's so many shots of crashing mm-hmm. waves that make you think about somebody dying in the water, which somebody dies in the water, but not in a crashing wave moment, you know what I mean? Yeah, uh, the, mm-hmm. the cinematography both uh, was really evocative, really ominous, and a bit of a misdirect in a really great way. The other uh, moment that really struck me in the finale was when the Testi de Moro uh, vase, mm-hmm. the kind of uh, sculpture, shattered, which they've been building to all season as that being a sign of this kind of story of male infidelity of uh, women killing the men. Uh, and at the end, it gets shattered when Harper and Ethan actually come back together and when there is no longer this existential threat over their marriage because suddenly they've discovered that they do still love each other. It just took, like, ruining their own marriage temporarily and almost ruining their friend's marriage, but their friends suck, so who cares? Uh, and then coming back together and going, well, that was the spark we needed. Well, and their friends really all. So nearly broke their marriage, not vice versa. I mean, uh, Daphne spurs Harper into cheating. uh, And also, um, you know, Cameron initiates things with Harper, according to her, we think, you know. Uh, And then it seems like, do you think that Daphne and Ethan had sex? I was going to ask. I love how they left that open-ended. And again, in this little talking head with Mike White after the episode, Mike White does not confirm or deny. He just describes what we saw, which is, you know, Harper, I'm sorry, uh, Daphne leading Ethan to this rendezvous location in an evocative way. And he leaves that for us to decide. And he similarly made a point of leaving the question of Harper and Cameron for us to decide. Side. He he chose to leave that open-ended, and I think that that is a really smart choice because at the end, especially if you take the position of like Cameron and uh, um, Daphne's marriage, it doesn't matter. 
it doesn't matter whether it happened or not. That is not, their marriage doesn't function on you did X, so I did Y, as much as it functions on you feel X, so I do Y. I feel Y, so you do X. They, they, they don't literally tell each other what they're doing. They just react to the interpretation they give each other. And that is what fuels their, you know, dysfunctional but functional marriage. Yeah, it was interesting to see the way that the body language changed between Ethan and Harper from that those first scenes when they arrive in the pilot and they're so stiff around each other and they seem so uncomfortable to that loving shot of them snuggled up at the airport. It's like, oof. Right. And and the other moment of uh, a triple plus Emmy Award winning body language in this episode would be Megan Faye as uh, Daphne mm. when she calls over Ethan on the beach. It's like, hey, what's going on? Have a seat. Tell me how you're feeling. What What's up? And And he says, you know, I think that Harper and Cameron did something together. And there is like a silent five seconds of her facial reaction where she just takes a moment and you can see all the thoughts running through her head before she pulls it back together and really closely reiterates something she already said to Harper about how her relationship works. And instead of Harper deciding to get a trainer, as Daphne advised, Daphne helps, becomes Ethan's trainer, it seems, you know, that yeah. uh, at least she has let him know that he could, even if he doesn't. Right. Which is, I I think, what he wants. Because at the end of the day, so much of this is just kind of little dick energy, so to speak. That Ethan has always felt jealous of Cameron taking the women in his life, so to speak. Which is weird and possessive. And you see some real moments in the later part of the season of Ethan playing this kind of really depressing incel-like a victim who says, you know, I did nothing wrong. I've always told the truth. Yes, I was in this compromising situation with the prostitutes in our apart in our hotel room, but I didn't do anything. So this is so unfair that you're judging me for that thing where I didn't do anything except for the part with the prostitutes and the condom in our apartment and I was really high on drugs, so I don't remember it clearly, but I didn't do anything. And I, I wanted to hit him multiple times. But at the same time, I'm really happy it worked out for them. I don't know. I it, It's satisfying. I don't know if I'm happy about it. <laughs> That's how I feel. Yeah, complicated. Uh, complicated. Kind of like mm-hmm. relationships. Complicated. Oh, gosh. I'm so glad that I don't think relationships are like what I think Mike White must think relationships are like. Right, but I, I do... so bleak. It, it is so bleak, but I do want to call out the other relationship, really, that, that um, comes to fruition in the finale, which is Valentina and Mia, mm. but it's, it's not really about Mia. It's about Valentina accepting herself and coming out and what's beautiful and also, you know, not a an overwrought plot, a real simple plot, is that Valentina was in love with the other a young woman at reception, but she's mm-hmm. dating Rocco. We find out she's engaged to Rocco, and she wants Rocco to come back to the front desk with her. And Valentina, an episode ago, clearly hates this idea because Valentina wants love. Really, that's it. And she's mm-hmm. jealous of the fact that they have love and can flaunt it in front of her 
And once she gets to experience that, that like sexual awakening that she gets to have with Mia in the end of the last episode into this episode, and once Mia kind of gives her the, the nudge to say, sure, I'll hang out with you again, but what you really need is a lover. What you really need is to now go out into the world because you, you're good at this. You're good at being yourself, essentially. You can find love. And that changes Valentina completely. In, in a really dramatic way, I think, in the finale, that, again, is kind of a simple story and kind of overly simplistic, to be honest, as a, as a gay man, but at the same time is true that, you know, if you are starved of love, it, the same thing applies to Ethan and my, my incel vibes from Ethan. If you are starved of love and desperate for love, you become bitter and resentful to other people's love. Even if their love is weird and depressing like Cameron and Daphne's relationship, it, it is an affront to you in some of those moments. And, and it, I, again, while it was a D story in the overall season of The White Lotus and not given a, a real deep arc to travel, Valentina did such a good job of communicating this to give us some sense of hopefulness in an otherwise really bleak show about how sex is essentially transactional. I was going to say that I think Mia taught Valentina that it is okay for sex to be transactional. At the beginning of the season, we see Valentina is almost puritanical. She is so upset about these sex workers being in the hotel and is like trying to drive them away. Anytime someone is flirting, she tries to break it up. She has not had sex with a woman, even though she's gay, because she is, you know, so afraid of her own sexuality she uh you know has this night with mia and then she is able to do give her a job she's able to return the favor and suddenly because she's able to do something for her in response she feels so much better about the situation you see her like brighten being able to do that for mia and i do think in one way that's um you know, of her feeling like like she's done a kind thing, but also like her conscience has been cleared a little bit. I, I think that uh, I, I don't see that story as being necessarily as simple, but I do think it was a beautiful performance. And uh, that's one of the things I like about this show is that we can see that same narrative and, and, and take something else from it, you know? Yeah, I, I was having the same feeling as you were describing a very equally valid, real interpretation of that relationship, where at, at the end, especially this season, which, again, in this little talking head bit afterwards, Mike White described this as being the season that's about sex. And I, I think that is extremely accurate. But it... I, I, the big takeaway to me that is also true about the first season's relationships in a lot of ways is that everything lives in a gray area. As much as you want to pick black and white answers to big dramatic life events, the reality is everybody's perspective on something is going to be different. Even two people who are seemingly very aligned, like the way Ethan and Harper seem very aligned politically, socially, you know, uh, ideologically at the beginning of the season, they reach a 
point where they're almost about to, well, in one case, Ethan's almost about to murder someone in the ocean. Uh, and that is because th- there is no simple, oh, yeah, they're on the same team. They'll be fine. But what's great about Mike White is he starts the show making you pick sides, so to speak, whether you mean to or not, making you feel like, well, Ethan and Harper, I like them, but Cameron and Daphne, they're bad people. And by the end of the season, you know, Cameron's still a bad person, but I don't know about the rest of them, you know? (laughs) He really makes you sit with your presumptions and then, you know, constantly reassess them as the season goes on. Yeah, I I mean, I do think that Daphne is just so charming and obviously so bright. She is a bad person, though. (laughs) I mean... She might be a good mom, though. She seems seems like a good mom. She kind of seems like a good friend, too. I'm going to throw this out there. She actually gives good advice to both both, uh, Harper and and (laughs) Ethan. You're looking at me like this is the worst opinion I have ever had. She's like, I don't know why I don't have any female friends. She makes a female friend and sleeps with her husband. Okay, sure. In one week. Okay. Sure, but... She saved their marriage. Yes, of a sort. <laughs> yes, of a sort. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. That's a, a correct uh-huh. answer. They, well, they have a new kind of marriage. Well, we're so caught up in, in obviously, Tanya, but also in, in the, the the rich, horny people. Let's talk about the horny men in, in a uh, non-triad uh, relationship. I'm talking about the DeGrassos, of course. Uh, how did you, you're like, what horny men are we talking about? Uh, they are very horny in this finale, uh, for better and for worse. I really liked, again, what kind of feels like a simple moment at the end where they all check out the same woman at the airport and they all kind of have a moment of being like, yeah, they are all family. They are all related. And, uh, you know, Albie is going to say a good word for his father because at the end of the day, he was probably always going to say a good word for his father at some point because he doesn't like arguments. He doesn't like arguments and he's one of them. Yeah. Yeah. There's something about, you know, like the clan, the tribe that this felt like it may have been referencing, um, yeah. you know, there's it's 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 primal. They're going to uh, protect their own. And and honestly, Oof. in a way, like if any of the stories, any of the arcs this season was a little anticlimactic, it's them. But at the same time, that's very appropriate and believable. They're just three men in the family, three generations of you know father, grandfather, son on a on a family trip together. Like there is nothing really dramatic that's going to happen to them. Well, and there was that moment where Bert said in the previous episode, you know, you can never really go home again because he wanted that embrace of a sweet woman loving him. And then he had that moment where Mia comes up and throws her arms around him and is just so grateful and happy. And I think that that achieves that for him because, number one, he feels his own virility again and he feels like a younger man. Um, And then for Dom, he also gets that sort of homecoming moment with the phone call with his wife saying, you know, oh, actually, uh, let's talk when you get home. It's not a promise, but it's, you know, opening a door. Yeah. And and honestly, I was 
happy to see them all have a, a, a very normal end to their trip. It, like, mm-hmm. you know, with the asterisks of Lucia running off with 50,000 euros, but good for her. That was, of yeah. course, going to happen the entire time. And it is worth noting the final moment we do leave on is me and Lucia going out into the town while the best life, uh, things in life are free plays to remind us that at the end of the day, the real heroes of this season as is always sort of the case with the White Lotus, but but it varies in, in how they get away with it at the end. But it's the, the locals. The locals are the real protagonists of each hotel, so to speak. But of the, the show, well, it's the guests. But of the world, mm. it's the locals. And it, it felt really, um, especially after the locals got screwed over much more in the first season, it felt very satisfying to end on a fun, happy note where you go, yeah, their lives are going to continue. And in fact, improved for the better this week. All the locals, their lives improved for the better. Rocco, Valentina, Lucia, Mia, even even Giuseppe, even though he almost died and got fired. I'm just going to say he had the most exciting week he's probably had in in years. They, they all had a great week. That's true. And I think that um, most of the locals that you described, except for Giuseppe, had sort of a like scrappy can-do attitude and Giuseppe was kind of a jerk and felt that he was better than others so the fa- he kind of felt like a middle manager almost you know yeah. I, d- I didn't yeah. mind seeing him cut down a peg yeah same same and uh, I, this is as good a time as any to finally score our White Lotus murder bracket. We have picked apart the finale. Let's just rip off the Band-Aid and admit that we both got this very wrong for the most part. Uh, I'm going to just uh, s- just scan through this quickly. Uh, I'm not going to even try to score us on how many people died because there is a question mark around some of the people who jumped off the boat. So I'm going to just call that one a mulligan and move on to were all the deaths going to be murders? We both said no. That's correct. We each get a point for Tanya's tragic demise. Uh, then we get into the real meat. Who died? And uh, just to remember, we will get two points if we get a guess right, but we will lose a point if we get a guess wrong. And if that is any indication of how this is going to go, it's going to go poorly. Uh, first of all, you did think that Bert would die. He did not, so you lose a point. I, uh, You and I both thought that Greg would return and die. That was really, really wishful thinking. No, we both lose a point. Uh, we also both came around to thinking Ethan would die. No, we both lose a point. Uh, I thought Cameron would die with Ethan. And there was a moment in the episode where they are fighting in the water and they could die, but it happened way too early in the episode. And as soon as that scene began, I knew I'd blown it. So that wasn't it either. I lose a point. And finally, the only point that we do get, each of us said, someone who hasn't been introduced yet dies. And in fact, when we made these guesses, most of the people who died had not been introduced yet. So I'm going to give us all the points back for that and say it was a wash. We both one congratulations fantastic i'm thrilled i am too i am too i love to be a winner uh, even when i got most of it wrong in fact i love to be a winner especially when i got most of it wrong there's one character we didn't quite discuss may i ask do you think that what jack was uh asked to do was to take her to catania was to take her to catania or did he break the rules Oh, I love this question. To save question. her life. I never, I do not think they were trying to kill Portia. 
I, I just think the entire scheme falls apart if Portia dies, especially because, quite frankly, a young white American girl in uh, Italy, that, that's headline fodder. Tanya mm. dying is a tragedy, but it's a rich old lady who drowned, and they would, they would cover that up. The media wouldn't care. But if Portia died, and I do think that Quentin and his gang of, of merry gays, merry murdering gays, uh, I, they're savvy. They would know how the media works around the death of a young white mm-hmm. woman. Uh, so no, I, I have no no reason to believe that the goal was to kill Portia or put Portia into mortal peril. I hadn't thought through this enough to think, was it always the plan to just bring her to Catania? Um, and and quite possibly, yes. I, you know, they really leave Jack hanging in a way where Jack obviously doesn't know that Quentin's died because he hasn't, the murders on the boat have not happened quite at that moment. Uh, so at the end, I, I'm left 50-50 on whether Jack was uh, going rogue and fleeing through Catania to try to save his own skin or if that was always the plan and he ditched her in Catania on purpose. I, either way... If the scheme had been pulled off, it's more suspicious if Jack ditches her in Catania, which makes me think that probably wasn't part of the plan originally. My guess would be that when she called him out, he decided he called an audible and decided, well, I'm not going to bring her back to the hotel because she knows the scheme. I'm going to get out and save myself. Yeah, and also him saying to her, you know, do not go back to the hotel. It is not safe for you there made me think that this was like an, an act of somehow protecting her i did have a moment where i thought oh no now he's gonna get in big trouble but really the people who would have punished him have probably been killed so it seems like it we don't know how Mm. big that that criminal organization is that's all left to your imagination which is the right answer there 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 i do not need more exposition on how connected to the mob quentin and his merry band were i I don't need it Uh, i don't want it Stay away. This is why this is such a good limited series, and we should never go back to the White Lotus in Sicily, ever. Which brings me to what, uh, you you have a look. Do you want to go back to the White Lotus in Sicily? I mean, I personally want to go there and eat pasta. I want to say hi to Valentina. I want to watch mm-hmm. Mia play at the, the lounge. You know, yeah, absolutely, 100%. But no, as a viewer, I'm done with that place. And in, oh, the, yeah. uh, in the after show, Talking Head, naturally they asked Mike White, where are we going next? Because season three has been ordered by HBO. I would have come into this episode telling you, well, the thing that unites all the seasons of The White Lotus is Jennifer Coolidge is there. But apparently that's not the case anymore. So we're really going into new territory with season three. And all Mike White said in this very exciting uh, promotional interview on HBO that was all of three minutes long, uh, he said that he's interested in death and Eastern religions. And sure enough, I think a white lotus in Bali or anywhere out in, in, you know, the Asia Pacific region would be a very interesting, very different setting for a new season. I think so, too. Um, I think, and I know he does a lot of this writing and directing by himself. I do think if he said it somewhere, um, and we did have a lot of characters who weren't white, which I think would be a nice thing to see on the White Lotus, uh, that I would hope that he would uh, hire some writers who were of that culture, too. Yeah, that's a really good point, especially because uh, anywhere in East Asia would be a a big stretch from where he's written the past two seasons culturally. 
I also mm-hmm. just think it's an interesting choice because, again, this is Mike White of Survivor fame. He he lo- I just I, I have this image of him loving a deserted island. So where mm-hmm. can he find a new deserted island, basically? <laughs> Ooh, I'm I'm excited and a little bit frightened to find out. Well, my final question, prediction, uh, wish fulfillment for season three is, okay, let's just play one game. If Jennifer Coolidge's Tanya was the person who connected season one to season two, which character from season two do you want to connect us into season three? Honestly... As much as I, so I'm not going to choose my favorite character. Like, it would be fantastic if Daphne could take us there. But I just think we've seen too much of her or we've seen just just the right amount of Daphne. I don't want to push that. So I think maybe it would be interesting if it were like, hmm, I don't know. Rocco? <laughs> Who could Rocco? it be? Rocco I think it's going to be a minor character. You know, yeah. a, minor, a minor character is probably the right call. My gut is Harper and Ethan, both because I want to see more Harper, but also because mm. they changed the most over the course of the season, and so it wouldn't feel same-same to see them again, whereas Daphne and Cameron would be unchanged. I am confident that they will be the same on another vacation, where Harper and Ethan could change for the better, they could change for the worse, but we know that they're in flux. That's true. That's very true. Well, listeners, what do you think? Write to us, podcast at streamageddon.com. We can't wait for season three of The White Lotus, but don't worry. We'll stream so many more things until then. So join us, won't you? And join us next week when we review our first streaming movie, Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery. Get excited and get ready to kill again. Because it's also a show about murder. That's just, it's true. Anyway, keep streaming. I love to be a winner, especially when I got most of it wrong.